What do singers Joyce DiDonato, Patricia Rossette, and Don Upshaw have in common? Find out on this episode of the Metropolitan Opera Guild podcast. Join us for a spectacular event honoring three magnificent artists. Janet Baker, Cecilia Bartley, and Lawrence Brownlee will be celebrated at the virtual presentation of the 2021 Opera News Awards on Sunday, April 18th at 7 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. Our three honorees will be saluted with appearances by Stephanie Blythe, Joyce DiDonato, Renee Fleming, Thomas Hampson, and Ramon Vargas, and with special musical performances by Aaron Morley and Luca Pizzaroni. Tickets start at $50 and are available for purchase at www.metgill.org awards or by phone at 212-769-7009. We can't wait to celebrate with you. The Metropolitan Opera Guild is dedicated to enriching people's lives through an awareness and deeper appreciation of opera. Our podcast features lectures and events presented by the Guild in support of performances at the Metropolitan Opera. The Metropolitan Opera Guild podcast is funded in part by support from the Stuart J. Pierce Memorial Fund. To learn more, visit metguild.org. In recent years, DiDonato, Reset, and Upshaw have all released jazz albums, such as Songplay, Diva on Detour, and Winter Morning Walks. Sometimes we think that singers are either categorized as opera singers or as singers of popular music, which includes jazz. However, these two genres are actually very closely linked together and share a lot of similarities. I'm your host, Stuart Holt, and on today's episode of the Metropolitan Opera Guild podcast, lecturer Deidre Bird will discuss how aspects of jazz, such as improvisation, have had a long-standing history in other forms of vocal music. There comes a point in every adult's life when they will come face-to-face with the inescapable question, do you like jazz? How would you respond? Grimace? Shrug it off with a, yeah, you know, I like a little bit of everything. Or would an enthusiastic nod fit the bill? Chances are, whenever this inevitable musical conversation takes place, that neither the person asking nor the asked really has a firm idea of what jazz signifies to the other. When someone says the word jazz, what do you hear? Does it go something like this? No? Slower? More avant-garde, maybe? None of the above. 
If all of this is jazz, what is it exactly that makes jazz jazz? It's a 100-year-old question that extends beyond the music. Even the word jazz remains semantically unstable, its exact meaning a topic of debate since 1917. At its earliest, the word jazz enjoyed a sense of syntactical freedom, operating as jargon for pep or energy, and used to describe just about anything. If you want to get really technical, we can turn to Professor Gerald Cohen, the go-to expert on all things slang, creator and editor of the fascinating paper-only journal Comments on Etymology, and author of a book entitled Origin of the Term Jazz, Dr. Cohen writes that the word probably derived from the slang word jasm, which originally meant vim, enthusiasm, or spirit, as in let's jazz it up a bit. Its textual usage dates back as far as the 1860s, an affirmation of its original reference to vitality rather than its subsequent allusions to virility. In the 20th century, according to author F. Scott Fitzgerald, the defining personality of the Roaring Twenties and so-called Jazz Age, the word jazz, in its progress towards respectability, has meant first sex, then dancing, then music. From a non-musical perspective, the question of what is jazz, with its untidy conceptual history, might best resemble the inquiry, what is an American? It's a question that leads to more questions. An American is a human being first, right? A human being who lives, or at one time lived, within the geographical confines of what is today the United States of America. Simple as those initial prerequisites might seem, it's guaranteed we have already run afoul of a great many opinions on the matter. Well, jazz is a little bit like that. From swing to opera, bebop and fusion, the title jazz can first appear as sloppy catch-all for a host of ostensibly uncategorizable styles but this couldn't be further from the truth. A closer look reveals that jazz's catholicity of sound and indifference to the rules of genre is the inevitable result of the diverse ingredients that led to its creation in the first place. Jazz is an amalgam of adopted musical traditions which evolved and flourished across the entirety of the United States by the early 20th century, and it is now the preeminent language of American vernacular music. Like the term American, Jazz can be applied to a whole host of seemingly opposing attributes, but when it comes down to it, the real definition is more feeling than fact. Or as the saying goes, if it don't swing, it ain't jazz. So what is it that distinguishes jazz as a genre? It has all the same elements found in other Western musics. Melody, the tune you can whistle along with. Harmony, the sound of notes played simultaneously. Rhythm, and to a much greater extent, improvisation, yet in spite of all that, nothing else sounds the same. Before digging into the complex social and artistic narratives that accompany the development of jazz, we should take a moment to consider the effects of Western European music's global hegemony on our ways of hearing. All those parts we just mentioned, rhythm, harmony, and the like, exist or don't exist in wildly different conceptualizations across the globe. Yes, everyone technically has the same aural and cognitive equipment, but members of different societies are conditioned to perceive and interpret music based on their personal experience. For a quick extra musical comparison, look at the way color is seen across cultures. In America, we commonly associate the color red with the qualities of heat, anger, or passion. 
In China, red symbolizes joy, happiness, and fertility. It is also the traditional color worn by Chinese brides to ward off bad luck. It's the same with music. A pattern of notes that sound inherently sad or depressing to you might be typically characterized as joyful or celebratory in the conceptual musical language of a different culture. Or, as the 19th century music critic Edward Hanslich wrote in The Beautiful in Music, there is no invariable and inevitable nexus between musical works and certain states of mind. Let's listen to a quick example of South Indian music performed in the Mohanam Raga. In terms of Western music, a raga is analogous to a mode, which is a type of musical scale or defined set of notes, the building blocks of composition. Similar to Western music, listeners can be taught to hear ragas as symbolic of different emotional qualities. The clip of music we are about to hear uses the Mohanam Raga, which is usually associated with positivity or happiness to someone whose ears are familiar with subcontinental Carnatic music. <laughs> At the very least, acknowledging the cultural relativism of our own experience grants us a better chance at understanding new ideas and idioms, a concept that is as crucial to jazz as it is to intellectual inquiry in any other field. The history of jazz is a complex and fascinating tangle, the particulars of which are full of holes, hunches, and poorly documented half-truths. Its roots are buried in a compound manifestation of both European and West African musical traditions, the latter a product of the slave trade, the very nadir of American history. From the 1500s up through the Slave Trade Act of 1807, nearly 10% of Africans sold into forced labor ended up in British North America, specifically the South, as plantation workers. Of the West Africans trafficked to the United States, about half came from the area spanning the Senegal and Gambia rivers, and the other from countries in West Central Africa. Music and dance, the two most important tenets of religious and communal exercise, as identified by famed Ghanaian ethnomusicologist J. H. Kwabena Neketia, were the only mutually important practices capable of withstanding the sea voyage and the obliteration of various tribe social customs by the slave regime. Those who survived the brutal journey and the division at the auctioneer's block 
channeled the remains of their cultural heritage through the only permissible outlets of self-expression, the cries of the working fields and, eventually, the Christian slave churches. Up through the 1950s, much African music was deeply mischaracterized as simplistic due to its prevailing emphasis on rhythmic elements versus the melodic and harmonic structures utilized in Europe. The publication of British ethnomusicologist Arthur Morris Jones' pioneering 1959 work, Studies in African Music, made clear that this misconception stemmed from an inability to ascertain the mind-boggling complexity of different tribes' variable polyrhythmic architecture. With respect to rhythm, African music is unquestionably the most complex in the world. Let's listen to an example of drumming for a social dance ritual by the Ewe peoples of Ghana. Take particular note of the call and response pattern in this clip. Its post-diaspora permutations were central to the work songs and religious music of the American Deep South. The properties and rules of African music functioned differently from those in Europe. Think of a piece of poetry as compared to a novel. They are two different forms defined by their own distinct properties and rules, yet they can perform similar tasks within the confines of their practice. Is a love story told more effectively over the course of 300 pages or three stanzas? It depends who you ask. To the peoples of West Africa and their American descendants, music, dance, and song were inseparable from the religious rites, folklore, and communication they synthesized. Music was not an autonomous feature, but part of a total vision of life. In this respect, African art lacks a sense of formalism, only when the word formalism is translated as pertaining to art whose only purpose is its own existence, art for art's sake. The European development of more democratically robust, melodic, harmonic, and rhythmic components evolved in the way that best suited the needs of those particular societies. With less emphasis on complex harmony and fixed melody, West African traditions found their means of essential expression through the creation of a polymetric and polyrhythmic contrapuntal universe that suited the movement of their lives. Later generations of transplanted slaves who, by force or coercion, converted to Christianity, adjusted their West African-descended music-making to fit the constrictions of European church hymns. According to composer and historian Gunter Schuller, this distillation resulted in the prevalence of three primary factors of the African tradition. One, a unique relationship to the beat, which later contributed to the idea of swing. Two, the superimposition thereon of improvisational melodies. And three, a call-and-response format in which the material is set. These holdovers, conflated with European performance practices and instruments, informed and shaped a variety of musical expressions. The forced, yet heavily restrictive, acculturation of the ensuing generations of slaves and their descendants resulted in the manifestation of the three types of music that preceded the creation of jazz, the spiritual, or blues, minstrelsy, and ragtime. Let's start with the blues. 
A secular counterpart to the spiritual, the blues are the backbone of the jazz tradition. All American music, really, from rock and roll to hip-hop. Blues music serves as the foundation for so many resulting genres because of its origins and essentiality. The blues was not created as an art music. It was, in the tradition of West African music-making, the fundamental mode of expression for an oppressed minority. The very embodiment of vernacular music, the blues literally gave voice to an entire subsection of society that had been stripped of all personal freedoms. As a result, suffering is a major theme, but as the voice of a people, the blues came to encompass all emotions, love, betrayal, hardship, found at the core of humanity. Traditional blues performance employs a style of sung speech and a slippery relationship to pitch that is more closely related to ordinary vocal patterns than prepared melody. This, in combination with frequent use of the work holler or field cry, is a continuation of West African performance practice. Here's a short example of a work holler from the Library of Congress archives. Now, can you hear the influence of the work holler on Delta Bluesman's Sun House's classic, Death Letter Blues? Have a soul to throw my arm around. I don't feel 
so bad Tell the good Lord son we down I said I never have a soul I threw my arms around You know it's so hard to love Someone don't love you Don't look like a satisfaction Don't care what you do It's so hard to love Someone that don't love you You know don't look like a satisfaction Don't care what you do Things you don't want to do. Love sometimes, feel you feeling sad and blue. Love high on front, make you do things you don't want to do. Love sometimes, leave you feeling sad and blue. In order to promote clarity of meaning, most familiar vocal music is syllabic. In other words, each syllable of a word gets one note. One of the primary characteristics of blues music is that the vocals are melismatic. Mimicking the work holler, they move through several notes on one syllable. Melisma, however, is not unique to the African continent. It's been employed across countries and centuries, with its earliest written appearance around 900 AD in the liturgical chant tradition of the Roman Catholic Church. harmony sticks to the three basic chords found in most church music, the tonic, subdominant, and the dominant in any key. The same you'd find in simple songs like Yankee Doodle and Silent Night. Typical song patterns crystallized into alternating chorus and refrains which repeat themselves every eight or twelve bars. A bar represents a designated unit of time. A classic example of a 12-bar blues song that features both the traditional music and lyrical components is Blind Willie McTell's 1935 The Ticket Agent Blues. Good Lord, good Lord, send me an angel down. Ain't spying no angel, we'll spy your teeth and brown. That new, well loving, swear to God it must be best. All these Georgia women won't let Willie Mac tear rest. There was a crowd down on the corner, and I wondered who could it be. Wanna thing but the women, boy, trying to get to me. I went down to the shed with my suitcase in my hand. A crowd of women run crying, Mr. Mac tell be my man. That was me. Ticket agent. Ticket agent, would you where's my woman gone? Better describe your woman and I'll tell you what road she's on. She's a long, 
Oh, mama, five and a half from the ground. She's a tailor-made mama, and she ain't no hand-me-down. Tell the truth. Mama, if you ride to Southern, I ride to Santa Fe. When you get in Memphis, pretty mama, look around for me. Maybe I will. Although much modern blues music is frustratingly commercialized or diluted via crossover, you can still find performers who have found valuable ways of honoring authentic traditions, if you know where to look. Notwithstanding personal preferences, the genre itself is still alive and well within popular culture. Thankfully, the same can't be said of minstrelsy, one of the other 19th century entertainments that held lasting sway over the development of jazz. As Burton Peretti, Marshall Stearns, Gunter Schuller, and many other jazz historians make note, the minstrel show was integral to the eventual proliferation of jazz. From the pre-Civil War era up through the turn of the century, minstrelsy was the most popular American form of entertainment. White audiences in the North and areas unaccustomed to slave labor found this style of archetypal stage performance both novel and democratizing. It translated the established serious stage traditions such as opera into a popular format for the masses while simultaneously reinforcing the American trope of dark-skinned otherness. A minstrel show commonly consisted of several comedic vignettes, which nearly always featured white performers made up in blackface who imitated and mimicked enslaved Africans, and eventually any American of African descent. Not only did performances attempt to satirize the appearance of African Americans, they created and codified an entire set of negative personality and behavioral stereotypes that pervaded deep into the 20th century. The accompanying music, which primarily featured Irish reels and English country dances, had little or nothing to do with the musical development of jazz. However, the form itself had a lasting impact on jazz's promulgation. Before giving way to its less racially charged turn-of-the-century sibling, vaudeville, Minstrelsy provided a means, albeit a warped one, for white audiences to view African Americans outside of the slave paradigm. Despite its conventionalized racist imagery and long-standing negative influence, in terms of the history of jazz, minstrelsy actually permitted for the then-novel idea of a distinctive African American culture. This tiny step readied white Americans across the country for the eventual mainstream acceptance of music influenced and made by the black community. Lastly, we have ragtime. Ragtime is so called because of the quote-unquote raggedy sounding texture of its heavily syncopated rhythms, like the unevenness of torn cloth. Though syncopation gets common usage in Western European compositions, before the 20th century it was hardly the primary feature of any piece in the canon. Ragtime is all syncopation, Syncopation, as it is used in ragtime, is a variety of rhythms played one on top of the other, a primary component of the polyrhythmic West African tribal music we heard just a bit earlier. A combination of Mississippi River honky-tonk piano and backwater banjo playing, written in European piano notation, ragtime took the forefront of American popular music for about 20 years, from 1898 to 1917. Nowadays, ragtime is probably best preserved as the happy-go-lucky and forwardly propulsive music cranked out of player pianos in old westerns, another historical myth perpetrated by Hollywood films. Ragtime was about 40 years too late for gunslinging cowboys 
and the bulk of scrolls made for player pianos mostly featured the religious or light classical music manufacturers hoped would lure wealthy buyers into purchasing their expensive self-playing piano machines. As black musicians still weren't permitted on the performance stage, most pianists earned their living playing bars or bordellos, sometimes known as honky-tonks. One of those red-light district pianists was classically trained composer and performer Scott Joplin. The talented Texan was dubbed the King of Ragtime after penning the biggest hit of 1900, The Maple Leaf Rag. He was so well known for his myriad ragtime hits that it seemed fitting for the genre to be recorded as having ended the year of his death, 1917. In reality, the carefree sounds of ragtime were silenced by America's entrance into World War I. Ragtime spent a fast and furious 20 years at the height of popularity and still delights audiences to this day, but its lasting contribution to the jazz idiom was by far its most important feature. Ragtime was a more formally structured blend of African and European music making, one that offered another avenue of familiarization with the sounds of the provocative rhythmic patterns at the core of jazz music. Ragtime, in all its rhythmic precision, gave way to stride piano, and without stride there would be no swing, the defining feature of anything jazz. Compare the driving rhythmic freedom, the beginnings of swing, in this clip from Willie the Lion Smith, to the comparably staid rag we heard earlier. Here we go! So far, we've discussed jazz's early development from the perspective of its American and West African roots. The second part of this talk will explore the new expressions and roles European classical music assumed within the jazz idiom. As a formalized, identifiable idea, jazz didn't crystallize until the aftermath of World War I cemented America's role as an independent economic power. There was an overnight change in how America perceived itself, 
and there is no determinant of identity more endemic than the arts. Jazz, serving as the only form of indigenous American music, came to symbolize and influence nearly every variety of creativity, from the visual arts to the stage. It represented a homegrown freedom from the imported value of European influence, a second independence for a society still coming to grips with what it meant to be American. That was lecturer Deidre Bird sharing with us the similarities between jazz and opera. If you'd like to learn more about opera, make sure to follow the Metropolitan Opera Guild, the Metropolitan Opera, and Opera News on all your social media platforms. I'm Stuart Holt, and thanks so much for listening.